thewellnesscouch.com, streaming wellness into your lives. Welcome to Back Chat, exploring the five pillars of health, thinking, eating, moving, sleeping, and also your neurology with Dr. Paul Bergamo and Dr. Kelly Holt. Welcome to Back Chat. My name is Paul Bergamo and it's great to be here on our next podcast. Back Chat's about being your best. It does this by exploring the five pillars of health. It refers to being your best in thinking, moving, eating, sleeping, and also in neurology. Today's Back Chat is a Back Chat podcast with a big difference. On Back Chat Podcast 38, we sadly say goodbye to Dr. Anthony Coxon as our co-host. Now, I can't speak more highly of Anthony. When, when I asked him to consider the co-host role just over two years back, we were just acquaintances as directors, both sitting on the board of the Chiropractic Association of Australia and Victoria. Now, I certainly consider Anthony a great personal friend, and I think from feedback from Backchat listeners, this certainly came through in our podcast series. We interviewed some amazing people, both locally in our backyard in Australia, as well as internationally in the US and New Zealand. So whilst there's a tinge of sadness today, there is also some great excitement, as on Backchat I've asked two quality individuals to be joint co-hosts going forward, and they have both accepted. Backchat has two sub-themes of people we interview. The first one is, a health, is health experts, and for our health podcasts, Dr. Kelly Hope will join me. I've got to know Kelly when Anthony and I interviewed him on Backchat 34 and 35 discussing central motor integration and falls prevention in each show. His resume is second to none, and for me, it was a no-brainer to ask Kelly to join us. To those who didn't hear this show, let me reintroduce Kelly. Kelly is currently the Dean of Research at the New Zealand College of Chiropractic. Besides his chiropractic degree, he also holds a Bachelor of Science major in Physiology and a PhD in Health Science from the University of Auckland. Dr. Holt's PhD focused on the effects of chiropractic care on sensory motor function and falls risk in older adults, and he was named Chiropractor of the Year by the New Zealand Chiropractors Association in 2014. He's currently a keynote speaker for the Neurologic Education Upcoming Chiropractic Seminar, Brain-Body Connection, Enhancing Spinal Function and Falls Prevention in Melbourne, Sydney and Perth in Australia. Hey, Kelly, how are you going? Yeah, great, great. Thanks, Paul. Good to be here today. Excellent. So, what's the weather like in uh, sunny New Zealand? Well, to be honest, it's not overly sunny. It has been pouring down with rain for the last few days. Um, so, pools overflowing, flooding everywhere. But, um, yeah, we do like the grass to be nice and green and lush for the cows over here. <laughs> so, we're not complaining. <laughs> Excellent. Now, how are you feeling about this exciting new project for you? Because I know you're a very busy person. How are you feeling? Well, I enjoyed my time with you and Anthony so much um, when you interviewed me a couple of months ago. I thought it would be a great opportunity to get on the other side of the microphone and get to talk to the amazing guests that you get on Backchat. Excellent. Fantastic. Now, the second sub-theme is, is inspirational individuals that we interview on Backchat. And for this, a person I've admired and respected for just under 30 years, Kim Fenton, is going to join us. Now, back 30 years ago, I think those were the days when we didn't have internet or internet was a bit odd and mobile phones certainly didn't fit the back pocket of uh, our genes, whereas they do nowadays, don't they? But Kim balances full-time work with raising her two primary school aged children, Kiana and Geneva. Kim has had a very professional background, starting the medical research and then completing her PhD before moving into the corporate executive industry for 12 years. Since started her own business, where for over half a decade, she helped executives better harness their emotional intelligence in business coaching. 
For the past five years, she's worked in the childcare industry at senior management role and currently is holding the position of head of commercial operations for a national child care organisation. I'm excited to have Kim as an inspirational backchat co-host as Kim has evolved herself in healthcare, education, corporate, her own business, all whilst raising two beautiful, well-adapted children in Tiana and Geneva. Hey, Kim, how are you going? I'm very good, thanks, Paul. Excellent. Now, look, you know, Kelly's talking about the rain. I just look outside here and all I can see really is blue skies in beautiful <laughs> Melbourne. What do you think? It is the most fabulous place, isn't it? But actually, I'm enjoying some sunny weather myself in Sydney this weekend. Oh, what? I don't think, yeah, don't think it's quite as warm as Melbourne, but oh. uh, yes, I'm uh, a little bit further north for a few days. Oh, no, because we normally have a bit of Melbourne-Sydney rivalry now. I've just uh, <laughs> have, have to back Sydney there a little bit. Okay, fair enough. Now, Kim, this is a, you know, you're a very busy lady as well. How are you feeling about being a co-host on Backchat? Oh, I'm thrilled to be here, Paul. This is a very, very interesting Backchat podcast that you do every three weeks and I absolutely love it. A positive mindset is something that's really close to my heart, so I'm very excited to be involved. Excellent. Now, for our audience to learn more about my two co-hosts, you've already got to know Kelly when we interviewed him on Backchat 34 and 5. Now it's time we get Kelly to work. As co-host Kelly, you ready to go? I'm ready, Paul. Excellent. As we interview Kim on a challenging part of her life that she went through. This will be very authentic, so this is with postnatal depression can be helped. Whilst depression and anxiety are subjects more often discussed these days, particularly as some high-profile individuals start to open up their, about their struggles, the topic of postnatal depression isn't often highlighted in the community. Many couples still struggle to discuss the topic with family and friends at all. But today we have one mum, Kim who realises the importance of talking about her struggles with postnatal depression as she comes a long way from the new mum who, after being admitted to hospital when her baby was four months old, when she simply walked out when diagnosed with postnatal depression. So, Kim, thank you so much for sharing your your insight here uh, with regards to postnatal depression. You're welcome. Now, just to kick things off, Kim... (laughs) You know, have, have you had any other previous experience with depression before you had the postnatal depression yourself, maybe with family or friends, you know, someone close to you? Any other previous experience, you know, particularly with postnatal depression, or, or was this all something new to you? The postnatal depression was definitely new to me. I hadn't uh, discussed it with anybody before. I hadn't had any mothers ever tell me that they had postnatal depression, so. It was something that was completely new to me. Obviously, depression isn't that new to anybody in society these days. We can all probably say we know somebody or are close to somebody who does suffer from depression, and I'm certainly one of those as well, with depression and anxiety being part of my uh, ex-husband's family history. So we do know people who suffer from depression, but just not postnatal depression. And Kim, just give our listeners from Backchat some context. How old, how old are your girls, and, and uh, when did this happen? My girls are eight and ten now, and this happened with my first daughter, Kiana, when I mean, she's nearly 11 now, so it was almost 11 years ago now that it all really blew up for me. Okay, and did you realise at the time there was something wrong? And if so, did you suspect it was postnatal depression? I Believe it or not, I was acting very bizarre but I didn't actually realize that there was something wrong with me and I certainly didn't realize that I had depression what I thought at the time was that everybody had lied to me about how wonderful motherhood was 
because you hear all these uh, stories about how wonderful everybody feels and how happy they are and how fabulous it all is. And I thought it was all a big fat lie and that, you know, you, you feel sad and you, it's overwhelming and it's so difficult and uh, that everybody else has a problem, not me. So it was kind of um, my daughter and I at that time against the rest of the world. That's how I, I took things. It's pretty amazing, Kelly. I mean, you're, how old are your kids, Kelly? Just leave the context to our listeners on back chat. Mine are 15 and 17. Right. So we've got 17, 15. I've got a 16-year-old and a 13-year-old with Caleb. And, and we've got a 10 and 8-year-old. So it's not easy being a parent. And, uh, you know, first-time parent sort of roles, I think, are probably the hardest. What, what did you find, Kelly, as a father? Well, I did read a few books before um, our first one came along, but absolutely nothing could prepare me for it. And, I mean, I think most parents feel that, don't they? It, it was like getting hit by a train because your life gets turned upside down. So, uh, yeah, it, it's a challenge for everyone, I think. And, um, you know, for some people, it, it, it's a major challenge. And ob- obviously that was you, Kim. And Kim? Yes, it was a major challenge. And knowing you, Kim, and you know, explain to our back chat listeners your history regards what you've done in the world. You've, you're very organised. You've you've achieved a lot. I mean, both you guys have got PhDs. I'm feeling a bit dumb on this side of the fence. So you've achieved a lot with your rigour, and then suddenly this this person arrives, which then turns the world a bit upside down. Was that part of the process? Do you think, or where you've been so organised, systematic, and then a baby arrives, your firstborn, that really. There's no manual. Doesn't matter, doesn't matter about Kelly's books he's read. We can get some ideas, but really when it boils down to it, it's uh, we've got to run with the fly bit. Was that part of it, do you think? I'm not sure that it was part of it uh, for me. I think that there's a lot of risk factors for developing postnatal depression. And when I think about what created it for me, I think it was more a feeling of isolation in general. So I had had the death of my mum over a decade before I had my first child. So right throughout my pregnancy, I remember feeling like there were things I wanted to know. There There was information about my pregnancy that I had. I knew when I felt the first kick and all of those types of things. And I couldn't ask anybody that information about myself. So I really started to notice her absence when my pregnancy was proceeding and then of course deciding how to give birth and deciding where to give birth and and then giving birth and then all the other stuff again you really notice the absence of your mum because she's the person who knows all of that stuff about you so I think that really contributed because everybody was being very nice to me and trying to be very supportive and very aware obviously that I didn't have a mum of my own but uh, it, nothing takes the place of that person because mm. they have information that you just can't get anywhere else. Kim, when did you realise that, that you had a problem here? You know, a, a lot of mums, uh, they have the baby blues. Um, you know, that's pretty common. But when did you really realise that, that there was something um, you know, major going on for you? Believe it or not, Kelly, it was when I had my second child two years later that I finally accepted that I had been severely depressed for my first child. I had actually been diagnosed with postnatal depression when I was my, – my first daughter, Kiana, was about four or five months old and I had a, a terrible morning and I was in tears and I ended up presenting at hospital and I was admitted and 
um, it was a pretty extreme situation and they popped me in this room and they said, fill out this questionnaire and we'll come back and, you know, collate the results. So I filled out this questionnaire and they took it away and they came back and three people entered the room and they were all looking very concerned and one of the nurses is saying, give me the baby, give me the baby, and I'm thinking, what is wrong with everybody? And it turned out that I was absolutely off the charts with with all the responses that I gave in this questionnaire. And I was very shocked by that because it gave me the impression that they thought that I was going to do something to my child and I was horrified by that thought because the issue with me, as I um, was explaining to Paul before, it wasn't anything to do with my child. She and I, when we were alone and it was just the two of us, we were as happy as Larry. We were just calm and peaceful. She was happy. I was happy. My issues were with everybody else. I wanted everybody else in the world to just disappear. So I'm th- looking at these people thinking, you, know, I, you think I'm going to do something to my baby? That's ridiculous. And so instantly I didn't. I felt a disconnect with them and their diagnosis. So when they left the room, I left as well. I just, I just walked straight out of the hospital. So did you? Keep- so how, how did it make you feel when, when, when they were saying to you that you do have a problem here? You know, they've given you this diagnosis. They've put this name tag on you. How did it make you feel? I was completely shocked. I, I thought I thought they were crazy, like everybody else in the world. I thought they were just insane. They didn't know me from a bar of soap. Uh, they don't know how strong I am. They don't know what I've achieved in the world. How dare they think I, of all people, have depression? That was kind of where I was coming from. I had really a complete lack of understanding of what postnatal depression is. So I thought everybody else had a problem. So, Kim, just to go back a little bit in, in dissecting this a little, so whilst you were diagnosed after having um, Kiana, did you actually get help initially or because you said a bit earlier that you only sort of realised it after Geneva was born. In that period, did you actually get professional help? No, I didn't. And that's why I think this is so important to discuss because I completely disregarded my diagnosis. I walked out, I went home, nobody followed up with me from the hospital, nobody rang me, nobody tried to find me. And I just went on with my life and I had to recover on my own. No medication, no counselling, no nothing. And the, there's nobody, nobody's to blame for that but me in, a, in the sense that I wasn't willing to accept my diagnosis. And that's why I think it's so important to discuss it because women out there today are feeling all the things I was feeling and not even considering postnatal depression as an option that it could even be possible that they have it and therefore they're not seeking the help that's available to them which could help them recover a whole lot quicker than I did. Kelly it's really interesting on one of the most powerful podcasts was number 23 when we interviewed Wayne Swoss and Wayne for those who don't know is a and was an elite AFL footballer played just under 300 games and did everything in AFL he won a premiership he was best and fairest he was an all-Australian but what the world didn't realise during his football career that he was suffering from clinical depression. And now when we interviewed him on that podcast and what Wayne does now, he goes out to talk a bit to what Kim talked about too, to, to discuss these sort of issues, to share it, to not suffer in silence really, to, to, to communicate the problems that one has when one has depression versus uh, being sort of in isolation. Kelly, even yourself with friends, have you come across these sort of circumstances where you found perhaps some friends have been maybe just a bit off, not the same they used to be, and and it sort of brought the questions to yourself about, gee, maybe I better give them a call and just see how they're going, and just and then follow up and pursue them a little bit. 
Yeah, it, it's interesting, isn't it, Paul? Because it's really a taboo subject. I mean, depression, um, a lot of people don't want to admit that they've got a problem. And, you know, if you're close to someone, you know, your friends, you just want to be there for them. So, um, you know, I can think of, of some of my friends who really try and keep it hidden. And you know, I think if you do have depression, the best thing you can do is ask for help because people do care about you and they, they are there to help and there's um, you know, various support groups out there. Um, so it would be good if, if our discussion in society can be less about this taboo subject of depression so people can seek the help that, um, that is out there that might help them get through it. And I think, Kim, if I come back to you, though, the, the, the challenge is that you didn't feel like you were happy with just you and your baby. So if people came into you, Kim, saying, hey, Kim, how are you? You're fine. You probably felt that you still needed that space. It's a, it's a, it's a very – there's a conundrum here, isn't there, regards seeking help and then not wanting seeking help and finding that balance. What do you think, Kim? It's about finding the right way to help because you're right, Paul, I was very happy when I was just alone with Kiana. When it was her and I, I was very, very happy. I mean, we had our challenges, obviously. She was a new baby, but uh, I was very, very happy with just her. It was all the other people in my life that I was struggling with at that time and they weren't doing anything wrong. They were there trying to help. They were dropping off food. They were coming around to visit. They were doing things, but I was very, very busy pushing everybody away. And that's very difficult when you are the depressed person, particularly when you have postnatal depression, which I think has a different stigma attached to it because you're supposed to be this warm, loving mother. And if you say you're unhappy, it gives the impression that you're not a good mother in Mm. some way. But I was a warm, loving mother towards my child. I just struggled with everybody else and I wasn't allowing them to help me. That was the problem. So was this family and friends that were trying to help you or people within the medical community? Who was out there offering you assistance? It was mainly the people who were close to me. So uh, friends, family, you know, all those people that know you and love you and when you have a baby, they're there for you. So I had all those same people there for me. Um, The medical profession, I didn't find helped me a lot with any of the issues that I had throughout either of my pregnancies and births, um, which was very disappointing, but the um, family and, and friends were always there for me. So, Kim, just on that topic again, where didn't it work from a medical perspective? Because there's going to be mums who are going to be listening to this show. They're going to be in a situation that they'll pick it up or there might be you know, mums who are concerned about their daughters, first-time uh, mums, and, and so have a listen to this podcast. You know, There's a lovely lady here talking about what she went through. And now she's come from through the other end. What didn't work from the medical perspective? And this is not a slur on the medical profession for one stretch, but you know we're in practice as a chiropractor. We know certain things that we provide don't work for patients. It's the reality. Can you give some insight there? Yes, I can. I, it was really um, around the understanding of what was going on every time I spoke to a medical professional. So the first time that was obviously the diagnosis with postnatal depression that was probably not done in a way that was conducive to how I would best respond and then for me to disappear and not be followed up at all I thought was very strange I thought somebody would they have my phone number they had my address they had all my details somebody could have rung me or sent a nurse around to check on me or something none of that ever happened but perhaps the healthcare industry is stretched 
Uh, there were also times when I took my daughter to doctors or the family health nurse clinic and I, she was crying. There was something a little bit wrong with my first daughter when she was a little bit older and she was crying a lot. And um, I said, you know, she's crying a lot. And they said, babies cry, didn't you know? So there was all those kinds of things where you don't understand. Mother knows. A mother knows when her baby's crying abnormally. And so there were all those kinds of things that would happen within the medical community that uh, have made me feel like there was a real lack of understanding. I guess it contributed to my feeling of isolation. You know, it's really interesting, Kelly. I mean, a lot of people don't realise with you, Kelly, that you actually were in practice for 10 years. Isn't that right? Before doing research? Yep, yep. 10 years in practice and then slowly got um, drawn into the research. And, you know, so your experience with, with patients with the same as mine that I experienced, you know, over the last 20 years, you've, you've got to be a watchdog. Patients come in and you've got to be aware of those yellow flags, those psychosocial elements. And... I know what I've said to associates I've had in my practice when we go through some cases is that when things are aberrant, different, especially when we've got a consistency of someone we've seen for quite a while and then so their behaviour is different to what they normally have, it's, it needs a bit of that inquiry to check in to say, you know, is everything okay? Because here's Kim talking to her medical professional and there's a great sign, I'd imagine, that uh, with a colicky baby, that is a bit out of, uh, that is creating probably sleep disturbances, stresses in the family. And the answer to say, well, look, maybe just do that, deal with it. I mean, you're going to walk out of that consultation not feeling like uh, supported, cared for, listened to, and it's going to actually spot, actually contribute further to probably the, the PND, the postnatal depression. What do you think, Kelly? Well, you're not going to be in a hurry to go back, are you, if you don't feel like someone's been there supportive and helping you and they're just more or less pushing you away. And what I'm just thinking here, Kim, is looking back now, what would you have done differently, do you think, if you were going through postnatal depression again, you know, the lessons that you learnt um, way back when, what, what advice would you give to the back chat listeners about things you would do differently? I guess if I was... Um if I was doing it again with the knowledge that I have now, I would actually acknowledge that I have postnatal depression. That would be the, probably the obvious thing I would do that would then change everything. I can see looking back that my entire path of the first year of Kiana's life would have been completely different had I just have had the courage and the strength to acknowledge that there was something wrong and accept the help because there is two parts to it. There's the first thing of acknowledging that you are depressed which is tough to acknowledge, but then there's the second part of it of saying, okay, I'm depressed, so I now have to be proactive in helping myself. These are the things that I need to do. And I, I think I would have done both of those things a lot better, uh, understanding now that postnatal depression can happen to anyone. I think it's a really valid point, Kim, too, in the context of what you've said there because um, there are those who are going through that who then listen to your story here and can it at the minimum, take that sort of message home with them to sort of say, you know what, I'm feeling uncomfortable. I'm feeling this incongruency that I've got to be my newborn that, as you said so eloquently, that we're all supposed to love that baby. You know, we're a mum, we're a nurturer, we're, we've been waiting. There's been this event called a baby arriving. It's been a nine-month period of waiting. There's been expectations. There's been rooms that have been prepared. Um, everything's in expectation, you know, firstborn, etc. And then suddenly there is that sort of mismatch to some degree. And 
from your experience, that's really that sort of clean, clear message just to seek help. And then even if you seek help but it doesn't work the first time, to seek help again, I suppose. Is that is that a fair comment? I think that is a fair comment. There are different things that will work for different people and there are different supports that people need. And I, I, I believe that I tried in some ways to reach out for the support and it was always there but it wasn't quite enough so you, you have to look for different ways you have to look in the medical realm and if there is counseling that you can get or medications you might need or um, therapies massage anything that you need in that healthcare realm but then you've got other um, the other realm of family and friends as well who are there to support you I remember a time when I was crying over bowl, a bowl of um, boiled potatoes because I couldn't work out how to mash them for a baby. So I, I mean, I, I was breastfeeding at the time and I knew babies couldn't drink milk and so I didn't know what to put in this mashed potatoes for my baby and I was just hysterical crying and thinking, who am I going to call? And I rang my mother-in-law who said, well, you just put some formula in it if you can't express, you just – just pop some formula and it'll be fine. And she was reassuring me because, of course, that's obvious when someone says it to you. But at the time, I couldn't see outside of my own head. And um, she was there for me. She was saying things like, you know, you've got this. This is fine. You can do this. You're a good mum. You're, you're fantastic at this. It's fine. And I still recall that that's the only time I ever rang her for help when I was absolutely desperate and needing to feed my child. That was the reason I rang. So it's important to keep calling those people that you know love you and you know are there to support you because they want to be there for you. And we're focusing a lot on mums because, you know, obviously it is usually the mums that have the postnatal depression. But when I was reading a little bit about this the other day, I was quite surprised to see that actually a lot of dads get postnatal depression as well. So, you know, that, that was a little bit of a shock to me. But it, it is something that we probably need to be um, aware of and that you know the dads listening to this podcast should be aware of too that you know sometimes it can affect them as well you know it's funny Kelly I, I think about what you're saying there and I, and I go back to when Kara was born I reckon the first year of Kara's life I felt a bit inadequate you know I I couldn't you know breastfeeding wasn't my my go obviously um, you know providing support where possible was the go but you sort of it was and, and I always admire the mother-child bond it's something which as a father uh i see it i see i see it simulate through to my kids right now i i mean i laugh sometimes when my daughter says oh i've got a i've got a sore area in the, on her back and sometimes she goes to her mother first right i mean i'm a chiropractor with 20 years experience and i go um hello did you want me to have a look at this and and you know what i put it down and i've said this many times that old bond between when Kara's not feeling well, she'll go to her mother, right? She'll go to dad, yeah, secondary. And I don't take any offence to that, but that's my observation of that connection that, that fathers don't have, especially with newborns. And, and and I reckon that if you didn't get the context of that, that could become a challenge to a father perhaps because suddenly that role, your role is – lessened versus say the, the maternal what, what what did you experience Kelly was anything like that for yourself or well we um shared the parenting a lot more when our kids were born my wife was halfway through chiropractic college and she didn't take any time out so um I had to really step up and do quite a lot of the parenting 
And, you know, it was a real challenge for her because she was, you know, I'm, I'm supposed to be the mom, I'm supposed to be there all the time for my baby. But um, she was having to leave a very young baby to go to classes at chiropractic college. So, you know, I had more of a role there. But I remember when Finn, my eldest, was born, I think two weeks after he was born, I set my chiropractic board exams. And you know what that's like. It's a pretty stressful sort of time. So there I am with this new baby. Life's been turned upside down and had to try and study for these board exams while supporting my wife and caring for the baby. And you know, it was just a, a very challenging time. And I remember it was probably a couple of weeks after that. I was It was probably our graduation night. And I was talking to a lady who had had nine children. And her advice to me at the time was, you just need to get through these first six weeks and then it all starts getting easier. And I've always remembered that because um, you know, I was kind of counting down the days to those six weeks going by. And she was right. It seemed like each week after that, it got that little bit easier. What about you, Kim, with your experience with the father of Kiana and Geneva? How, how did your husband at the time go with this? Uh, I don't think he felt any um, obsoleteness, so to speak. I think it was more that I was just doing it on my own. He was travelling a lot for work, so he had a job that took him to Perth a lot of the time. So, for instance, the day I came home from hospital with Kiana, he got on a plane to go to Perth that very day, my first day at home. And I was lucky I had my sister staying with me for a couple of extra days and so that was really good but then of course she had to go home as well I think I actually sent her home if I remember correctly so I'm you know there on my own with my baby which I thought at the time was fine I just I didn't want anyone else around but I think that that was the problem was that I was getting what I wanted which wasn't what I needed so we, we had a little bit of a stressful life back then too because we were actually living in our garage we had a single car garage and we were living in the garage so there was no babies room there was no beautiful fancy um, mobiles and all lovely stuff it was um but the baby was sleeping in what we would have called our study at that time so nothing was really organized for us but I don't know how much he noticed I know he noticed my depression and my bizarre behavior but I think that affected him more than actually being a, a new dad okay I know everyone's journey through postnatal depression is going to be different um you know for you Kim how did you eventually get through it? How did you eventually recover? Well, actually what happened was work rang me. So I was on maternity leave and work rang me and I was at that time in a an international uh, corporate role. So my work took me overseas a little bit and I they rang to say there's this meeting and, and so we have to send somebody and really the only person we can send is you. You're the only person that actually knows this stuff at, at this particular moment in time. Can you go? And they knew they weren't supposed to be ringing me and I wasn't supposed to be going anywhere, but it was apparently a desperate situation. So I said at the time, look, I'll ask him. I'll ask my husband at the time, and but I'm pretty sure he's going to say, no, I've got a six-month-old baby and I'm still breastfeeding. I'm sure I can't go. Anyway, I asked him, and just to show you the impact my behaviour was having on him, he immediately said, yes, please go, get out of this house now. Can you go yesterday? And that was a real shock to me because it was the first time I realised how much he was actually suffering. 
this is a really important thing to understand about postnatal depression. It's not just the woman who goes through it. The partner goes through it too. It's actually a couple together going through postnatal depression and that was too something that I just hadn't considered my impact the impact of my behaviour on him. So he really wanted me to go and so I called him back and I said, all right, I can go. So off I went. I was hysterical at the airport wanting to cry and he's going, don't cry in front of the baby, just go. So I left and I was very upset in the airport and then I got on the plane and someone handed me a glass of champagne and all of a sudden I had this wave of happiness that came over me and it was the first time that I had felt that true happiness since before I'd had Kiana. And it was, I think, because I felt like me again. All of a sudden I was Kim. I wasn't a mum. I wasn't a wife. I wasn't a daughter. I wasn't a friend. I was just Kim. I was by myself on this flight and I was heading off, I think, to America and went for a week, had a great time with all my colleagues and my peers and and my clients and um, rang home every night and he'd say, yep, everything's fine. Uh, We're going well. He... We, I was really struggling to get rid of the swaddle, the thing that you wrap the baby in so that they sleep, and she kept crying and crying, and I couldn't do it. And when I went away, he did it. So I ring one night, and he goes, okay, so she's sleeping without the swaddle now, so that's all fine. And it was extraordinary for me to see that I really wasn't that needed. I was obsolete in actual fact. He was doing a wonderful job. He was a very capable man, and both of them were perfectly happy and healthy without me. And it started to make me realise that, I needed to pull myself up a little bit and uh, get on with things. And so that was the beginning of my recovery, really just an opportunity for one week to just be Kim again. Kim, you've really raised a really interesting point, I reckon, and it's identity. Because we all have identities, don't we? We, you know, Kelly identifies his his role that he does for research for chiropractic around the world, which is massive. Um, a mother, a, a, a lady in the corporate world who's, a CEO of a company identifies her identity in, in her business world, you know, what that may be. And then suddenly you've been identified as a mum, but then you've probably lost a bit of your own personal identity. And then that glass of champagne, that moment sort of got a bit of your identity back, which probably was a course of which you could still feel that, you know what, I can still be Kim, but I can still be a great mum. As well, I can still be both versus just being one. Does that make sense? What What do you think? Because you went through that. It It makes perfect sense, Paul. It, it, I actually lost more than just a bit of my identity. I actually lost all of my identity because I did uh, go on maternity leave. I did, um, you know, just spend all of my time at home with our baby, and I haven't spent a day out of work since I was seventeen years old. And so for me, it was, I wasn't anything but someone's mum, which now, now I see that that's the most important thing that I do. It doesn't matter what I achieve for the rest of my life. I know that that's the most important thing that I do. But when you're suddenly thrust into that, and I say suddenly, even though you know it's coming for nine months, it still feels like shock when it actually happens to you. And then all of a sudden, because I was still working up until eight and a half months pregnant. So my life hadn't changed while I was pregnant, but all of a sudden everything changes and I'm just alone, at home alone with this baby and you do lose who you are. And so the postnatal depression compounded that because I, I, I got completely lost and isolated. Yeah, I remember when my kids were young, I was saying that we used to you know, co-parent 
and I was working, you know, I'd just graduated from chiropractic college, and I've got to say, I actually loved the days where I could go to work. It was, you know, maybe three days a week, and I would go to work to have fun, to, to get away, to get that identity back again, and, uh, you know, it was my playtime going to work because it was really challenging when I was the primary caregiver at home looking after the kids. Um, you know, interesting experience. You know, really good point you make there with that identity, Paul. Mm. It's uh, the same for me, Kelly, now, but um, back when I was – when I had Kiana, you'll be interested to know that I actually said to my ex-husband, I'd like to stay home and look after the baby. So – with all of this going on, I still had this notion. This was she was probably about three or four months old at this stage, and I said, "I think I want to give up work and stay home and look after the baby." And I remember him saying, "No, no, yeah, not doing that." And I don't know why he said that at the time. It could have been because I was acting so bizarre. He thought I can't be married to this person when she's at home. It could have been it. I don't know, but he definitely did not want me at home and the only reason that I went back to work was because of him and I was upset about that at the time, really upset that he wouldn't support me in staying home and raising our child but it was the greatest gift he'd ever given me in the end because going back to work helped me remember that I'm a multitude of things. I'm a mum but I'm also a hundred other different things and I would have probably with my personality maybe forgotten that. So going through this journey of depression, Kim, you know, you, you've obviously learned a lot of lessons. How has it altered your view of postnatal depression having gone through it yourself? Oh, gosh, I have uh, such empathy and such understanding for people who are going through it. And I understand that when they say they're upset, that it's got nothing to do with their baby. And this is such an important thing for people to understand about those who are depressed, uh, particularly in postnatal depression, it's got nothing to do with the love for your child. It has a lot to do with just who you are and how you're coping at that particular point in time. So all of that shame that's associated with coming forward and saying, I am not happy, I should be happy but I'm not, that should be okay to say because we still all want to love our children, we still all want to be good human beings but sometimes we just need to be able to tell somebody exactly what's going on so that we can get the appropriate help. Excellent, Kim. Now, on Backchat, we like to have our talent talk about an impacting, pivotal personal experience. So we all know there are personal, inspirational experiences in one's life that we all know our listeners can also draw from with the talent that we interview. So, Kim, could you share with us, apart from your battle with the postnatal depression, an inspirational moment in your life? I, it's very challenging, Paul, um, but I, I guess one thing comes to mind, and that's actually the birth of my second child, Geneva. We've talked a lot about Kiana today, but I did have a very challenging birth. With Both of my children were challenging births, actually, because, uh, long story short, but I've had some body scans and things to show that my body isn't the right body to uh, give birth. So 200 years ago, I would have been one of those women who died in childbirth, along with my children but and now with modern medicine you can find that out whereas uh you know a couple hundred years ago you couldn't so with my first child there was there were a few dramas and an emergency cesarean and so with my second child they said uh well we're not going to give you an epidural because we want you to have a plan caesar we're not doing that again we're just not going through all that again i said okay 
So we did a planned Caesar and the epidural, I had problems with the epidural with the first Caesar. So they said, we're not going to use an epidural. We're going to use a spinal block. And I said, okay. And I didn't ask enough questions. But what happens with a spinal block is they put it in your spine and then it's done. They can't top it up. With an epidural, they can keep topping it up until it works. So spinal block goes in, everything's fine. And they're starting to um, remove her from me, starting to cut, cut my skin and I could feel it. I'm going, I can feel it. And they're saying, oh, no, it's all right. Yeah, you'll be able to feel some pulling and tugging. It's okay. Uh, I'm saying, no, no, I can really feel it. So they'd got about a quarter of the way through before I was, you know, quite extremely hysterical. And uh, they said, okay, something's gone wrong, but we can't fix it because it's not an epidural. We can't top it up. So you have two choices. We can get the baby out of you now and you'll feel it or we can stitch you up and try it again. And they went through the risks for both of those options with me on the table. This is in the theatre. Wow. And I chose the first option of get the baby out of me now. So she was removed from me without an anaesthetic and I passed out through part of it. It was all very dramatic. But what it's taught me is that there is an inner strength that we all have that we can't quite imagine in our normal everyday lives. So if you had have said to me before that happened that I would have my second child cut out of me without an anaesthetic, I would have said you were insane and I would have said there's no way I could ever go through something like that. But I did and I survived and she came out and there was no postnatal depression and I was completely happy and everything was fine. We all survived it. But it showed me that there is nothing thing that go through there's nothing that I can't survive and that all of us have that inner strength somewhere within us that we can draw on when we need it gee it's an amazing story Kim and Kelly you know I've known Kim for just under three decades as I alluded to earlier and knowing how resilient she is not but not knowing that story first time you've ever mentioned it to me Kim it does make sense to your character, you know, your strength and what you've, your challenges you've come through and worked through. And, you know, Kelly, we hear of stories, don't you, you know, where there's, where mums have lifted cars to take a baby off. They've found incredible innate type strength uh, to do something which is just beyond normal physiological realms. I mean, I mean, this is some of the work you do in research, I suppose. What do you think? Yeah, that, that's quite incredible. I was sitting there listening to Kim's story and feeling bad that um, you know all week I've been complaining about a, a dicky knee that I've got going up and down <laughs> stairs, and it, it kind of um, it makes you think just harden up a little bit when someone like Kim has gone through that. Yeah. I'm actually not the only one uh, since that. Uh, I know I've never mentioned it before, Paul, but this is sort of not something. That- comes up in conversation yeah, um, enough, but I yeah. it did it did come up in conversation with another person that I know who went through exactly the same thing so I actually know one other person who's been through that so I'm sure that some of our back chat listeners there would be others who have had that experience but yeah it is everything's in perspective now so I actually had to have some um, surgery a little while in November last year I had you know relatively major surgery and I was quite sick for a, a few weeks I had six weeks off work at the end of last year and uh, you know doctors were talking to me about how I felt and stuff and I my standard thing now is oh I've had a baby cut out of me without an anesthetic there's nothing you can do to me <laughs> so and you know they all just look at me like I'm crazy but it's it's true it's, you do feel a little bit invincible and and it's good to take on that strength excellent yeah 
This has been quite a, an amazing story you've shared with us here, Kim, and I've gotten a lot of, out of our conversation about um, the postnatal depression. We, we are going to have to wrap the show up, but what I'd really like you to do is, can you think of three key messages from uh, what we've discussed today that you'd want to share with, with the Backchat listeners? Yes, absolutely. The first one would be to eliminate any preconceived notions of postnatal depression being something that will never happen to you or someone that you love. There are risk factors certainly that increase the likelihood of postnatal depression, uh, but many women can never explain why it's happened to them. So just to know that it can happen to anyone is really important. The second thing is if if you're suffering from it yourself, you need to talk about how you're feeling and you need to ask for help. The people who love you really do want to help you. But I, even despite my situation, I do believe starting your journey with a doctor or a trusted, trusted, you know, health professional, someone qualified, is a good idea. And listen to what they say. They did try to tell me, albeit in the wrong way for me, but they did try to tell me and they did want to help me, I'm sure. So if you can find someone you trust in the medical community, a chiropractor, a GP, somebody, there will be help available to you. And the third one is um, if you know someone you believe is suffering from postnatal depression, offer your support, but in a way that's useful. So don't just say, if you need me, I'm here. Actually be there. Actually do things. So drop off food, offer to sit with the baby while the new mum sleeps, make your own coffee when you visit, and most importantly, don't let the new mum push you away as much as she tries to, and she will try to. Excellent, Kim. That's a really great summary for the three take-home points. Uh, for those who are suffering from postnatal depression and for those who think that there might be others who are not suffering themselves but others around them who are suffering. Discussion with depression can resonate negative feelings to those who are suffering with a mental health problem, so we need to be responsible here and pass on some depression helplines. And given that Backchat has uh, a great great audience in Australia, the US and New Zealand, we need to release some helplines in each country. So in Australia, Beyond Blue provides information support to help everyone in Australia achieve their best possible mental health, whatever their age or whatever they live. So the the website relevant here is beyondblue.org.au. Or you can call one three hundred two two four six three six. In New Zealand, there is an the the website relevant here is depression.org.nz and the phone number is 0800 757 And in the US there's an organization specific for this, Postpartum Support International, which can be found at postpartum.net, and the relevant phone number here is one eight hundred. Nine four 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 seven seven three. Well, Kelly, this is your first back chat podcast on the other side of the microphone as co-host. What did you think? Well, I really enjoyed it, Paul. It's been great talking to you and Kim today. Um, I've gotten a lot out of it, and looking forward to getting more out of the podcasts that we do together in the future. Excellent. And Kim, final words from you. Thank you very much for having me today. I look forward to being on the other side of the microphone next time, but it's been really enjoyable to have a chat about this today. Thank you, Kelly. Thank you, Kim. Thank you to listen to Backchat. To stay abreast with updates with Backchat, please go to our Facebook page, facebook.com forward slash Backchat podcast. All relevant website links of today's podcast will be at our Backchat podcast Facebook page. If you like this show, please leave a five-star rating on iTunes. We'll leave you one thought. Be the best at what you do, and you will grow and inspire others around you. We look forward to catching up with you on our next 
Backchat Podcast. This has been a production of thewellnesscouch.com. Check us out on Facebook and join in the conversation on facebook.com forward slash thewellnesscouch. Subscribe to each show on iTunes and check us out on Twitter. The Wellness Couch, streaming wellness into your lives. Whilst the Wellness Couch presenter endeavor to provide accurate and helpful information to their listeners, these podcasts cannot take into account individual circumstances and are not intended to be a substitute for health and medical advice from a qualified health professional. You should always seek the advice of a qualified health professional before acting on any of the information provided by any of the Wellness Couch podcasts.